0: Welcome to the British Army's Leadership Podcast brought to you by the Centre for Army Leadership. Hello and welcome to this special edition of the Centre for Army Leadership Podcast in which we are privileged once again to be joined by Chief of the General Staff, General Sir Mark Carton-Smith. In our inaugural podcast, CGS spoke about his own personal experiences as a leader throughout his life and career. Today, he looks to the future the demands on our future leaders and our leadership, and draws a critical eye, both on the challenges and opportunities that will define success for the British Army of tomorrow. General, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us again today. Um, Last time we spoke, or last time we met, you gave us an insight into your own leadership philosophy, your own personal journey as a leader, what you believed makes British Army leadership unique, and you touched on some future challenges, and it is the latter that I'd like to discuss in a bit further detail today, please. Firstly, looking at it from an institutional perspective in terms of how well prepared we are for that future, and then the future uh, leadership challenges themselves. You stated the defining characteristics of our age include the exponential rate of change, the emerging impact of technology, the changing rules of war, and an increasingly complex battle space in the midst of a blur in between peace and war. If we were to look at the Army now as we prepare ourselves for that reality, there appears to be a number of inherent barriers, potentially, that we need to overcome to ensure we can effectively navigate the challenges ahead. So if we can touch on some of these. Firstly, the perceived lack of diversity in the Army, and specifically I'm, I, I reference diversity of thoughts and experience. What are we doing to address this?
1: The root of your question probably sits around uh, the nature of the culture of the institution and the sense that we actively seek to harness the the best and widest set of talents from still a reasonably homogenous culture. Um, and that culture is particularly well suited to the unique and very specific circumstances of the battlefield. So it's disciplined it's conditioned, it's pretty orthodox by nature. And because it belongs to a hierarchical, disciplined organization, it's reasonably compliant and conservative with a small c. Um, and whilst that's the right mix for the demands of the battlefield, it's not necessarily conducive to the most entrepreneurial or innovative Um or open approach. Um, And as you've suggested, the the suite of multifaceted challenges that confront any institution at this moment of permanent and escalating technological revolution and change, uh, that speaks to institutions that are as open-minded as they can be. Um, So for instance, the senior leadership of the army uh, is run by the executive committee of the army board And we seek to influence our own deliberations with as wide a set of non-executive directors as we could find, um, two of whom are very senior women with very strong track records in the private sector. I think more widely, in terms of actually opening up our culture, it's probably got to be predominantly a top-down campaign. And the best way to do this is to put together a like-minded team of individuals who agree that we need to initiate change in order to become more diverse, more open to outside external stimulus and influences, and really release their energy, their initiative, and their ambition to get after it. I mean, I think there's a hunger through the organization for precisely that broader range of experiences uh, and those who are self-motivated are, are are looking for precisely that stimulus themselves. For the rest, we've probably got to provide it for them. And if we want to change some of that culture, often a good start point is changing some of the incentive structures around it. Because we can tend to reward those who thrive in the echo chamber. And we do, to some degree, reward a degree of conformity. Because we tend to select and indeed promote people, even if it's only subliminally, but in our own image, which is through one set of perspectives and often one set of experiences. So to initiate that change, I think we need the institution to recognize that diversity is not just the best thing, it's also the right thing. And diversity actually means creativity. And as an organisation going through this period of change, creativity and imagination are going to be really key attributes and skills.
0: And do you think we're adapting fast enough, given the rate of change that you've spoken about previously, and and given the fact that we recruit bottom-up? and we don't tend to have lateral entry as we spoke previously. Do you you think as an organisation we're adapting fast enough to to the need to have that diversity?
1: It's evolutionary. It's certainly not revolutionary, but it it is changing faster and faster. It's a very different feel to the army of the 2020s than the army I joined in the 1980s. I think that's indisputably the case. Um, It's more ambitious it's better educated and better trained, and it's much more demanding on its leaders. I think as an institution, and institutions do evolve, um, the progress is, is steady, but not spectacular. In terms of the organization, and I make the distinction between the institution in a sense being the framework, Uh, and the organization being the delivery components. That's actually changing much more quickly and is much more adaptable and fluid. Uh, More so, I think, than most people imagine.
0: You spoke there about the traditional hierarchical structure of the army, which one might argue can be prone to suppress challenge and innovation, creativity, and, and what is often spoke about, safe to fail culture. How as leaders then do we set the conditions for effective followership to unleash these characteristics and in turn, the true potential of our individuals, our people, but the organization as a whole?
1: I think one of the ways to it is to encourage challenge. Um, There's an interesting rubric that says that A-team players select A-grade subordinates because they like the stimulation and the challenge. That they provide for them and that brings the best out of the leader and it brings the best out of the team Uh, and the corollary is that b team leaders tend to select c team players because they don't like that challenge and they don't want to be exposed by their team Um, and so there is definitely something here around uh leaders of tomorrow being comfortable in their own skin and their own self-knowledge and their own professional competency to encourage dissent and challenge which stimulates the entire organization the second aspect is that you know delegation is you know absolutely crucial to an organization such as the army and notwithstanding some 40 years worth of preaching the merits of mission command. I often, on visits, come across command styles, cultures, and atmospheres where it's quite clear that the tone is very directive. And so, commanders almost at every level probably still lack the confidence to delegate sufficiently. And people have got to pay out the rope. And, you know, my rule of thumb is you should delegate to the level of discomfort. And when you reach that level, you've got to delegate some more, because it's only in that manner that senior commanders can create the time and the space to think actually clearly about the future. Otherwise, they're just fixed with the immediate necessities of the day-to-day struggle.
0: So my next question probably touches on some of the B and C team players that you spoke about, um, and again, relates to uh, our hierarchical structure and arguably has been guilty in the past of creating what some might describe as toxic leadership or destructive leadership, however one might define that. Do you think that is a a fair challenge of our organisation? And what are we doing to tackle this? Are we doing enough?
1: I think it's probably a fair challenge. I come across not very many toxic leaders, because I don't think uh, as an organisation that at its heart is values based and we've all elected to serve and therefore we are volunteers. So there is something about the institution and the values that it represents that appeals to everybody in uniform. That I actually come across very few people who set out to be bad leaders. Where toxic leadership exists, it's not the product probably of evil nature, but it's clearly probably something to do with lack of self-confidence, lack of empathy and self-awareness, whereby quite often those who do seem to leave a trail of destruction in their wake are, you know, the least sensitive to it, which is not to say that I would preach that, um, you know, we need a soft um, compromising command climate, because I think leadership has both hard and soft qualities to it, because it's a combination of setting the right example, powerful persuasion, and occasionally compulsion. And there is certainly a time for single-mindedness and ruthlessness. But I think there is also an issue about recognizing that that leadership um, is something that people grow into and they can learn about and they can study and that they can practice. And practice does make people better. And every leader I know during that journey has made mistakes, but the best leaders reflect on them, probably don't repeat them and emerge much more self-knowledgeable and therefore much more effective at leading people with them. Leadership at the end of the day, let's be clear, particularly the military climate, is about bending people to one's will.
0: On that issue then, how as a follower would you deal with a leader that might be termed destructive?
1: It's a difficult one, isn't it? Because it rather depends how brave you're going to be inclined to be, how much risk you're prepared to stand into, you know, both professionally with respect to the potential consequences on one's career Um, And whether you think in standing up for yourself, you're actually standing up for other people. And you're also standing up for the integrity and the dignity of the organization that one's proud to serve. So I would encourage everybody to take that brave pill. And if you can't do it on your own, and not everybody will be inclined to do it on their own, then do it together. Because I would take you back, I don't think very many leaders set out to be bad leaders that day. And occasionally, they just need telling. And they can't always be told top down. Often, they need to get the message bottom up.
0: I'd agree. I'd agree. And I think um, your point about self-awareness is absolutely key. It's something that we've recognized and are keen to get after with some leader development work is um, individuals having a better understanding of themselves, because leadership leadership starts with the individual, is not it? And I think um, that's where we have some of our problems. People just don't understand the effect they're having, the, the, their behaviours.
1: But, I mean, I wonder whether there there is this responsibility. I mean, uh, you, I think, have uh, discovered a sort of uh, a footnote in some of our data that suggests 80% of the people that you have polled have witnessed what they've described as sort of toxic, poor leadership. And one wonders what percentage of the 80% then went on and did anything about it, or did they ignore it? And one wonders on that basis, whether people recognize that leadership works both ways. And you've been very strong on the reciprocal relationship of followership. Well, followership in those sorts of scenarios you know, needs to recognize its responsibility and obligation to the team, to the organisation and the wider institution to act when it sees things going wrong.
0: In your speech at the land warfare conference two years ago, you said that whilst war remains a violent and visceral conflict of will, technological changes are altering many of its characteristics. How do you think the ongoing digital and technological revolution, will affect our leadership and our ability to lead?
1: Well, this has been an interesting example in the first eight months of the COVID crisis, whereby commanders and leaders at every level have had to issue direction, articulate their priorities, and in some sense project their personalities remotely uh, through an array of digital fora. And I think, you know, the, the technological revolution is going to lead, in the first instance, potentially to flatter structures. And that will incline towards a series of democratizing tendencies. More people can be engaged more of the time. And more people on that basis can contribute. Uh, and so one might imagine that we ought to be moving into an era where there's a much more active, inclusive, debate and conversation going on through the organization, which would be a good thing. With respect to the distinctions, as to how might this impact on leadership and leadership styles? I think in some respects, there are some enduring features and principles around leadership that probably won't be materially changed by the means available. But I do think that command will potentially change. And uh, generations of future commanders are going to become much more familiar with having to sniff the battlefield digitally. And the sense of fingerspitzengefühl, which was that tactical acumen that battlefield commanders of previous generations were able to sense when the moment was right for a decision is going to be more difficult when you're doing it remotely and you're not sensing this physically. You're having to gauge it through data. And I think that's particularly clear of you know, the, the one resource that is absolutely finite, and that's how much gas have your people still got. And until you can invent an algorithm that can really tell you what the fighting spirit is of that particular organization. And have they still got the sort of light of battle in their eye, despite the fact that they've not seen a ration pack for 96 hours, their Bergens were lost 48 hours ago, they got another 20 Ks to march tonight, and they're going to fight another battle group battle before dawn, you need to be able to look people in the eye persuade them that that is what they're gonna do, and what's more, that they're able to do that. And so commander's gonna have to strike the right balance between being surrounded by the technology that might persuade them that they can delay a decision, and they might on that basis be able to make a near perfect decision, as opposed to the commander who senses that moment when he needs to go forward, look people in the eye, and go early with incomplete information in order to seize and retain the initiative.
0: So based on that, would you say that the, the fundamentals of leadership endure, that the, the nature of leadership endures, but the characteristics or the character is changing? I think that's
1: quite a good way of putting it, because I think that the fundamentals of leadership endure because leadership is about the people. Command is an amalgamation of all sorts of other things. And yes, it speaks to leadership, but it also talks about, you know, managerial skills and professional competencies, whereas leadership is much more visceral.
0: Given the pace of change, the technological advances, the need for understanding the complex battle space that you speak of, are we selecting, training and developing the leaders we need for 2030?
1: Well, most of, for instance, the subunit commanders of 2030 are already in the army. And they've been carefully selected uh, from an exceptionally competitive pool. And so the raw material, we think, is outstanding of both our junior officer cadres and our junior non-commissioned officers. So the onus is now on us to equip them, I think, with the professional knowledge and the skills, which means that they're going to be able to sufficiently cope with the increasing complexity of the 2030s. Because I think their, their core character and their nature is proven and continue. To improve as they grow and experience maturity and wisdom, but to be confident, we need to be clear that we're equipping them with with the right skill sets and giving them the opportunity to then apply those skills in order to learn. And that's really the focus of our Army future force development work: to make sure that we're not just fielding the right capabilities in equipment terms in the future, but we're also going to be Fielding the correct commanders who have the right knowledge in order to harness you know the full suite of capabilities potentially at their disposal, and keeping up with that rate of technological change may well be one of the key challenges of commanders where you know digital shelfs' lives get shorter and shorter and shorter, uh, and what one can't afford is commanding officers, subunit commanders. Platoon commanders and senior non commissioned officers, you know, not to be absolutely abreast, confident, and familiar with, you know, the latest digital range of capabilities. Otherwise, they will be very rapidly accused of fighting yesterday's war.
0: And on that, and again, relating back to this exponential pace of change. You touched on it there, the importance of learning and adapting. Do you think as an organisation, we are learning fast enough and that, that lessons learned cycle is mature enough for us to, to keep pace with that? I don't think
1: we can be complacent about it. It's quite interesting. You know, the, the army was hungry for knowledge when it was on a really punishing Roulemont through Helmand. And the army was ruthlessly focused on trying to absorb lessons in order to not repeat them in subsequent rotations. But it took some pretty senior intervention to get the army focused on Helmand, almost as the exclusive main effort at the time. And there were many who thought that at army level, it was impossible for an institution of this scope, scale and ambition to have a singular main effort. But it took that intervention in order to focus the field army on what was going to be really important. Now that we no longer have a fighting war to focus on, I don't think we can assume that the army's hunger for knowledge is necessarily as energetic and as focused as it could and should be. So the ability of the army to really stare into northern Syria and understand how an enduring proxy surrogate war continues to be fought by the Russians, Turkish proxies, Syrian and Kurdish partners and allies, how the war is being fought in Nagorno-Karabakh today and what the impact is on, you know, ground close combat and the advent of, you know, Cheap, ubiquitous armed UAVs, for instance. You know, one would want those issues to be a sort of constant frame of debate and interrogation across the field army. Quite often it isn't, uh, and we become quite introspective.
0: You spoke um, earlier about what the future battle space may look like, and I guess COVID 19. Um, the current emerging threats of that modern b- battle space, both demand that we work and operate dispersed and at reach, uh, two very different environments, two def- different contexts, but the fundamentals of leading remotely endure through both of those circumstances and environments. What impact do you think that remote leadership is going to have on us and how we lead?
1: And we, we potentially covered some of that um, earlier. If, I think in some respects, you know, distance is back. And because digital means allow you to bridge that distance, for all sorts of reasons, uh, a federated, distributed, and rusticated system is much more resilient. And it's been true of uh, the army through this COVID experience. But it would be equally true if we were being actively challenged by an adversary. But what the remoteness means is that our our, our message discipline has to be far crisper. We've become quite used to sort of long, rather ambiguous tracts of prose rather than you know, the rather admirable clarity and succinctness of quick battle orders. And there is something about the excellence of our operational staff work, which is designed to take an organization through crisis when everything else around it is collapsing, that we throw away when we come home and we go back to long, turgid, mostly unintelligible messaging. But I think now uh, digital technology ought to enable us to recognize that those who are good on the net, on operations and on exercise, that is a style that people need to replicate when we're at home routinely.
0: If I can move on to your defined notions of of war and peace. And instead, we often talk today about an era of constant competition. This gray space of sub-threshold competition can arguably leave our people exposed and vulnerable. And again, arguably those most at risk are likely to be our junior leaders, our junior non-commissioned officers and our young officers. What more can we do to prepare them for operating in such sensitive environments?
1: I think some of this is around being clear ourselves about the distinction between training and education, because we, we tend to train for what's predictable. And therefore, we're able to replicate and repeat. And that becomes a rote. Um, But of course, by the time we deploy our young people, they're moving from a predictable training environment into the hugely unpredictable, ambiguous operational environment. And training will only get you so far. What fills the gap is education and education imparts clearly knowledge and the knowledge increasingly dispels fear and instills self-confidence in the fact that they are adequately equipped to manage this seemingly very confused, ambiguous, and uncertain battlefield. And we pay a lot of attention to our training for war, whether we apply quite the same emphasis on educating for war, I would potentially question. I'd also just, you know, stepping back from that issue, I'd say that it's, it's interesting in my experience that all too often, those who actually have the authority to do things differently very rarely exercise that authority, whereby those who most routinely find themselves having to make the decisions on a day-to-day basis, which are the majority, they really actually have the authority or the incentive to make slightly bolder or riskier decisions that might actually improve the output. And there is something there about imparting Uh, the freedoms uh, and the delegated authorities and accepting that things will never be perfect, that sets a tone and a climate for our most junior commanders to feel confident in making a decision at the right time rather than prevaricating or thinking that somebody else will be better suited or more knowledgeable. Which will almost certainly not be the case.
0: So, once again, we're back to mission command,
1: aren't we? We are back to mission command. And when you really unpack what is the purpose of mission command, mission command is about enabling those closest to the problem to use their initiative. And they're using their initiative in order to exploit opportunity. And if there is, you know, one overarching word that I would use to encourage everybody when they're thinking about their style of leadership and how they should behave and how they should act, it is that in every situation and eventuality, they should exploit at home, at work, at play, in sport, in life.
0: In our last meeting, you spoke about the increasing importance of trust, integrity, transparent competency and professionalism all that underpin our license to operate in light of this is our leadership doctrine our values based leadership doctrine is it still fit for purpose or how might or might we need something different
1: i think values based leadership doctrine is fit for purpose because we all buy into a values based organization and it's against those values that we will, you know, occasionally measure ourselves. So I do think the doctrine is fit for purpose. And, you know, one of the the rules of doctrine is you only need just enough of it. And occasionally the army produces rather too much doctrine and then doesn't really recognize the value and the importance of the doctrine that it's published. And the doctrine itself, of course, is just a handrail against which people need to test. And because leadership is at its core, you know, a personal attribute and skill, people will apply the doctrine in different manners that suit and are conducive to their own personalities and skills, but also the requirements of those that they're leading. And there's no sort of, you know, uh, single rule of thumb for how anybody should lead. Um, But I think um, for those who are interested in it, the doctrine is both an important and an interesting read. And it's certainly an invaluable handrail um, and aid memoir from which people can explore whatever it is that works for them and the people for whom they're responsible.
0: General, thanks very much. We're going to end on a slightly lighter touch, if you may. Um, Three quick-fire questions who is your most inspirational non-military leader and why
1: it's quite a difficult question to to be really crisp about and i've sort of toyed with you know whether one should you know reach back in time to somebody like shackleton you know who who clutched in a sense success and victory from the most dramatic set of circumstances or whether one should actually ignore the the question to the extent that maybe inspirational leadership, uh, isn't the the critical value, maybe moral leadership or innovative, uh, and entrepreneurial leadership is interesting. Um, and people like Ron Dennis, who ran a supremely successful formula one racing team McLaren, and sat at the sort of peak of success for over two decades, and to all intents and purposes was was the architect of the the theory of marginal gains, Mm -hmm. Uh, is somebody, I think, who falls into the bracket of extreme entrepreneurial and innovative leadership. Shackleton falls into the bracket of inspirational leadership. And somewhere between those two poles sit all the rest of us.
0: A lot to aspire to. What will be your biggest leadership challenge in the future?
1: I think the biggest leadership challenge in the future for me, and by uh, me, I I mean the Chief of General Staff, uh, is, I think, tackling the bureaucratic inertia, which inevitably attracts to an institution of this shape and size and complexity. And also recognizing that the the key uh, test of strategic leadership is the ability to close the gap between the vision that one articulates for the institution and the experience that we've all got. Because if the ambition of the vision is sufficient, none of us have ever been there before. And therefore there's a gap between all of our experience and where we need to get to. And into that gap falls strategic leadership.
0: Final question, sir. Taking yourself back to 1982, with the benefit of hindsight, what advice would you give young 2nd Lieutenant Carlton Smith?
1: If he were inclined to have listened, which he wouldn't have done, I would have said, remember that you are a volunteer for the profession of arms and there's something in the articulation of being a professional soldier as a profession that suggests that it should be read about, studied, reflected on, from which one will learn. And that no matter what rank you are, we're actually paid to be experts and not amateurs. I would have said, life is all about taking big and bold decisions and being prepared to live with the consequences of your decisions and always take risks because as your career opens up in front of you, you want to be in the out-of-bounds area, not an observer looking in. I'd say be yourself, have the courage of your convictions, expect the unexpected at all times and exploit every opportunity. This is your life. So have absolutely no regrets and jump all the puddles.
0: General, thank you very much for your time. Very nice to see you. Good luck. Well, I hope like me, you thoroughly enjoyed that conversation with Chief of the General Staff, General Sir Mark smith I-, I was particularly encouraged by CGS's honesty about some of the institutional challenges that remain for the British Army, where he identified a culture that had been honed for over 300 years for success on the battlefield, but arguably needs refining to release that innovative entrepreneurial spirit necessary for the digital age. He described a future that will also demand leaders with true self-confidence, inner confidence, as well as empathy and self-awareness, and a strength of character that will promote diverse thinking, encourage challenge, and proactively delegate. And to do so not just because society expects it of us, but because it is demanded by today's generation of more ambitious, better educated and more expectant junior leaders. And also because it is demanded by the challenges of the current and future operating environment. An environment that is characterised by a revolution in technology, which will continue to draw upon the fundamentals of leadership whilst challenging our command competencies. But as our people continue to take centre stage, whether as commanders or leaders, it remains incumbent on the institution, indeed on us all, to develop the raw talent of our people with the professional knowledge, skills and competencies to thrive in a fast-changing world, supported by an agile lessons learned process that maintains our focus on what is in front of us whilst leveraging the lessons of what has gone before. And finally, CGS warned of the perils of institutional inertia, which Whilst he framed as a key test of strategic leadership, I firmly believe it's the responsibility of all of us to help close the gap between the vision and current reality. As leaders, we must continue to take risk, to push boundaries and to seek every possible advantage to enable us to thrive in the future fight. If you like what you've heard today, please do subscribe to our podcast, visit our website, Central Army Leadership, and follow us on social media, LinkedIn, Facebook and Twitter.